welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau. In today's episode, we're going to look at what legal, regulatory and policy delights await the higher and further education sectors in 2024. I'm delighted to be joined by two relatively new colleagues, Helen Dyke, an employment lawyer with many years experience of advising colleges and universities, who joined us uh, in October from Owen Mitchell, and Mark Taylor, uh, an education specialist partner for over 16 years, uh, who joined us last September from uh, Evershed Sutherland. Helen, if I might start with you then, Uh, there have been quite a few employment law developments recently, uh, particularly in the area of family and caring responsibilities. So what are they and how might they affect colleges and universities? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Samita. Uh, The government announced proposals to make changes to a number of family-friendly pieces of legislation back in 2023. Um, and they're all due to take effect on the 6th of April of this year. So colleges do need to consider uh, their policies, their procedures, look at amending those and adding to them. Um, just to quickly summarise, so first up, we've got the uh, paternity leave rights. Um, we've got the uh, amended regulations um, that have come through in draft. Um, and if they uh, all go through as they should, then it means that employees can take their two-week paternity leave entitlement as two separate one-week blocks. They used to have to do it in one week in total or two consecutive weeks. Uh, They can take paternity leave at any time in the 52 weeks after birth rather rather than taking leave in the first 56 days. Uh, And they will only need to give 28 days notice of the intention to take paternity leave. um, And that's hugely reduced from the 15 weeks before the expected week of childbirth. So some changes there. We need to get those into policies, make sure that staff are aware of it. Um, Similarly, the carers leave regulations, they were laid before Parliament just before Christmas, and they set out the statutory scheme under which employees can apply uh, for up to one week of unpaid carers leave in any 12-month period. Um, And key features of that are it is a day one employment right. So as soon as they start employment, then they can apply for that. It applies to uh, employees that have a dependent with a long term care need and those who want to be absent from work to provide or arrange that care. Um, Employees are protected from detriment and dismissal if they uh, take or they seek to take that leave. And there's certain rules around um, how the requests can be made, the notice, Employers can postpone a request if the business is going to be unduly disrupted. Um, So, again, that's something that we're going to need to see a policy on. So I think what strikes me about both those, because they're they're obviously admirable um, developments around important aspects of uh, private and family life and so on. um, But they do mean that, uh, that there is the potential for more disruption from the employer's point of view because of shorter notice periods and 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 greater um rights around requesting leave and so on so is that do you, do you think there's anything in particular that institutions can do to to manage that risk or is it just about having the policies in place so that you get as much notice as possible i think it's about good communication with staff understanding um what the staff what the employee particularly wants to do at an early stage um, they probably colleges and universities will probably be doing that anyway. Um, but, um, you know, the, the regulations are what they are. So we now have to add these changes into the policies and make sure that we're following that procedure. The carers leave is something 
um, quite new. So again, that is something that we're going to have to really consider. It might be that colleges are already colleges and universities are already offering that, um, but it is something that we are going to have to now reflect in practice and make sure that staff are aware of the right. It could be seen actually as a great thing that we that we're making yeah. sure that staff have this. Uh, yeah, um, and de definitely when you think about the. Uh an aging population, the number of people who need care, et cetera. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be part of that that mix, hasn't it? Th there's also been some wider stuff around flexible working more generally, hasn't there? Which um, which is like, so So what's gone on with the, the wider flexible working piece? Yeah, so this, this is really quite key. Um, the regulations were also laid before Parliament uh, last year. And what they are going to achieve is they're removing the requirement that an employee has to have 26 weeks of service. This is quite big. So that change means that any employee can make that request for flexible working from day one of employment. That's quite huge. We're going to need to really think about how this is going to affect things. You might have an employee coming in to do a certain job in a certain way. It's all set out in the contract and then you get hit with a request. Um, there are some other changes as well. So, um, for example, there's an increase to the number of flexible working requests that an employee can make. Um, they could only make one a year. Now they can make two. And there's also a reduction in the length of time that an employer has to respond to the request. So that's going from three to two months. And that includes hearing any appeal. There's no change to the um, eight statutory business reasons um, for refusing the request. That's going to remain unchanged. Um, and the other thing to look out for is the ACAS code of practice on handling requests for flexible working. Um, that's gone through consultation. So as soon as we've got that, then we'll we'll be issuing guidance around that and making sure that colleges and universities are, are ready to go with this change. But I think it is going to be this is going you talk about disruption. Yes. Yeah, this is going to be something that we're going to have to grapple with and work out how we deal with it. It's going to mean more employment tribunal claims as well, potentially, because if we're getting more requests through, staff yeah. are becoming more aware of their rights. If the requests are rejected legitimately under those eight reasons, then that's where you start to see problems and claims coming through. Absolutely. Um, another area where we might see problems and claims coming through, Helen, is in around the longer way to change uh, for dealing with um, sexual harassment. Um, so what's gone on in that area then? Yeah, another new piece of legislation. The government have been quite busy. Uh, so we have the Worker Protection Amendment Equality Act um, legislation that's going to come into force in October of this year. And this means that all employers are going to be under a statutory duty uh, to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. And if they fail to do that, um, then you're going to have the Equality and Human Rights Commission knocking on your door, uh, taking up enforcement steps, plus any successful tribunal claim would be subject to a comp compensation uplift of up to 25%. So that is quite big. That's a big change. Uh, and, and again, looking at what colleges and universities might do to prevent those uh, adverse consequences, what 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 do you think that uh, they should be doing? I think they, they really need to understand what their obligations are. They need to, um, again, put in place the right policies and procedures to show that they have taken those steps to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it, in terms of it's great to have a great policy, but it really is putting it into practice. And the cost of getting it wrong really can be quite extensive. There's no cap on compensation in discrimination claims. So it's really important to start preparing for it now 
to take advice on what changes are needed to those policies, but also to think about providing specific tailored training to line managers and senior staff, um, looking at your statements that you've got around a zero tolerance policy, um, thinking about how you're going to track issues around harassment. Is it worth having a central register so that you're looking at any issues or trends? But we need to think about data protection alongside that. So there's a lot to think about with this change. Um, and then finally, I think the area uh, in employment that I was interested in hearing more about was in relation to redundancy and the law relating to redundancy processes, etc. And obviously for the sector, that is sadly becoming an increasingly common issue. Um, so what changes are coming in there? Yeah, you're right. We are starting to see more um, redundancies. We're certainly advising on on more um, in the last six to 12 months, I'd say. Um, and this this change from the government, it's the maternity leave, adoption leave and shared parental leave regulations. It's going to extend the period of special protection from redundancy um, for those employees who are on maternity leave, adoption leave or shared parental leave. Um, so currently the position is that um, parents on those types of leave should be offered first refusal of any suitable alternative employment that might be available if there is a redundancy situation. What this change is doing is it, it's extending the protection. So for maternity, the protected period will cover pregnancy um, alongside 18 months from the first day of the estimated week of childbirth. For adoption, it's the, um, it's the 18 months from placement for adoption. For shared parental leave, it's the 18 months from birth, provided that the parent has taken six weeks of shared parental leave. So this is all going to apply um, to include pregnancies, I say, from when the employer is informed of the pregnancy on or after the 6th of April 2024. Um, and it's also going to afford protection to employees who have suffered a miscarriage um, for a period of two weeks after the pregnancy ends. So this is quite a big change. It's yeah. going to extend the protection um, that employees have uh, during redundancy. So it's just more for colleges and redundancies to think about and uh, particularly when you're looking at redeployment in that redundancy situation. Yeah, um, thanks very much, Helen. Um, Mark, you've been waiting really patiently and I want to bring you in now because um, you and I have been talking uh, separately about some challenges and opportunities for the sector recently, um, more, more in the area of partnerships, uh, where the regulatory net may be tightening, but also opportunities opening up internationally, particularly in India. So. Let's look at partnerships then. What 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 is happening in the partnership sphere for for the sector? Well, I don't want to focus too much on student immigration into the UK because that's probably a subject for a podcast in and of itself. But it is useful background to what I'll be talking about. So, I think most people know that it's now about one in three UK universities have seen a decline in their student numbers from overseas students last year. Yeah. And there'd been quite a lot of discussion around tighter regulation of student immigration into the UK. So it wouldn't be a massive surprise if there were further declines in student overseas student numbers into the UK. So looking at franchise provision, which can be to overseas students quite a lot of the time, but can also be seen as a way of generating revenue in much the same way as attracting overseas students is. So Last autumn, the OFS announced that it would be carrying out more investigations into partnership delivery, which was carried out by subcontractual partners. That was last yeah. autumn. But then last week, the ONS 
said that it had found findings of fraud and academic malpractice in franchise delivery. So we now find ourselves in a situation where the national statistics body is saying we've got a problem. Yeah. And the regulatory body for HE is saying we're going to be looking more at this. So I don't think it would be a massive surprise if we didn't see tighter regulation or at least more focus on this area. I well, think that... Uh, gone sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that that is the issue, isn't it? That it's another one of these areas where unless we do something about it now, that further regulation, which can be so burdensome, is going to is going to bite. So, uh, so, so what do you think might be done then? Well, I'd kind of like to see the sector come together and get its own house in order because I, I think we can. Yeah. So I know that Independence HE is carrying out a review of collaborative provision at the moment, and that's exactly the sort of cross-sector working which I think we need. Yeah. I mean, for, from my perspective, you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that I think there's more universities could do around the contracts they put in place with their partners. Uh, I, I've been drafting franchise agreements for pushing 20 years now, and that the general approach I've taken to them is that these are collaborative documents with an academic partner, we're of equal esteem, they're generally quite light touch. We, we, we're careful about quality assurance, but the, the commercial terms of them are, are actually pretty friendly and soft. Yeah. Now, you compare that to subcontracts which I draft in the further education sector and subcontracting franchise that they're very very similar things for these purposes yeah those contracts are completely the opposite they yeah. are twice as long they are very hard-nosed and unashamedly absolute sledgehammers of contracts yeah. you accept that the main provider takes the regulatory risk the main provider is the one who might get sued and the only way the main provider can back off that risk legally is in that contract so i, I do wonder if universities may want to start think about toughening up their franchise agreements yeah absolutely i think that you know it, because it's such an autonomous sector it has, you know, they've evolved in a very different way, haven't they, to the much more um, driven by funding rules, et cetera, that we, we've seen in FE. But you're right that the, the tide may be turning a bit on that, given the level of regulatory risk that's now being well, that, carried. That, I think that's probably a topic for another day because Indeed. I could bore everybody at length. <laughs> but there are some interesting parallels about the journey the further education sector's been through. Yeah. with frauds, academic malpractice in subcontracting and how the regulator of further education has imposed that external regulation on the sector. And so that that's a journey we may see in HE unless we fix it now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But contracts aren't everything, are they? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I'm a contracts lawyer, of course I'd say they are. <laughs> but something I'm forever boring clients and our team here with is... It, it's much better to have no contract or a bad contract in place with a good partner than it is to have a good contract in place with a bad partner. If you're going into a relationship thinking that actually I'm going to rely on the contract and everything will be okay, then that's not a very happy place to be. If a mate came to me and said, I'm thinking of marrying Cruella de Vil, 
<laughs> my response wouldn't be, well, that's a great idea. Just make sure you've got a good prenup in place. My response would be, mm, you might want to do some more due diligence on that one, buddy. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So due diligence, partner selection, really, really important here, aren't they? Yeah. And also important to what we're going to move on to talk about, which is um, opportunities in India, um, where there have been some potentially helpful developments, haven't there, um, which may be all the more interesting to the to the higher education sector, particularly given the ongoing squeeze on immigration and international student recruitment here. So so what, what has happened in India? Exactly. Well, look, the immigration background to this one is that Indian students now make up the largest cohort of overseas students coming into UK universities. So it's not a big leap to think that UK HE is popular in India and that delivery within India could be a really interesting market for UK universities. So there's potentially good news, potentially bad news. Let me start off with the potentially bad news. Um, interestingly, this is linked to franchise or subcontractual delivery as well. Right. And the regulators in India obviously are already not keen on that because it, it's always been the case that any franchise delivery within India means that the regulatory authorities in India, the UGC, will not recognize an award made by an overseas university in India. Yeah. Now, it might be that the partners accept that award won't be recognized in India and that that's not part of the business plan, but it, it could be quite significant. And that, that has always been the case. But what a lot of overseas or non-Indian universities have been doing is having local partners helping them with their delivery. And a lot of the time, that's an online partner. Yeah. Now, the UGC has come out at the back end of last year and said it generally is not in favour of the online delivery. It's generally not in favour of partners helping overseas universities with their delivery and that it is likely to see that that is actually in substance a franchise. Right. And so the award won't be recognised in India. I see. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you already have collaborations in India, which look on any level like they could conceivably be a franchise then you may want to think about whether the, you want the award to be recognized in india and if you do i would be then looking at the substance in the form of that collaboration yeah and of course any uk universities looking at collaborating with an indian partner or in india they should be thinking about how they structure that collaboration to make sure if you want the award to be recognized in india then it is Great. Okay. So that was the bad news. Potentially good bad news. news. Potentially, potentially, bad. potentially good news is that Indian HE has been a closed shop for all of my career. Yeah. Um, overseas or non-Indian universities have not been able to set up in India and deliver in India. Uh, in 2022, there was a bit of a softening yeah. in that in Gift City in Gujarat um, allowed in some overseas universities to set up a campus in yeah. Gift City. And that was really interesting. But at the end of 2023, even more interesting news is that that policy has been extended nationwide. And actually, the category of university that is capable of now setting up a campus in India has been widened. And the regulation behind it has been softened a bit. So, I mean, that that could be massively interesting for an ambitious UK university that's thinking of an overseas campus and will be eligible to deliver in India. Yeah. But 
it, it would have to be a very ambitious university yeah. because I think we, we all know any overseas campus is really a difficult and very involved project to get off the ground and to see through. And then here we've got the extra risk that these regulations in India are brand new. They've of not course. been tested. We're not sure how the regulator will respond to them. So there may be some advantage to moving first on this, but I think there's also likely to be a disadvantage of being almost a test case for seeing how this works. Quite, absolutely. And as you say, I think the the the, the kind of orders of risk that are involved in setting up campuses overseas are such that you you would really need to think very carefully about the benefits versus all the risks that you're taking on with being either the first mover or, or, or substantial investment in, um, in in campuses overseas generally, and especially a new, new regime like that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts, Mark and Helen, and I'm sure we'll be returning to these topics in the months ahead. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. For now, it's goodbye from Helen, Mark and me. <laughs>